Hey, I'm Brett Salyer. I'm a computer scientist. And I'm Marcus Riggs, a crypto investor. We're just two friends seeking to learn a little more about the crypto space every week and share our discoveries with you. Join us each week as we go through the evolving world of crypto and discuss everything from Bitcoin, NFTs, blockchain technology, mining, and a whole lot more. We are the Crypto Bros. Welcome back to the Crypto Bros Podcast. I am Marcus. This is Brett. Uh, Today we're going to be getting into hardware wallets versus software wallets. Um, But first, we are going to be getting into the news as usual. So today we have Intel designing ultra low power ASIC chips. And this is really cool because Intel's usually not in the, the business of making complete devices, which means here they're they're advertising or at least this news article is advertising the the fact that intel is going to be developing these bitcoin mining chips they're not going to be developing bitcoin mining asics well i guess it would be an asic but it's not going to be a complete unit that's able to mine things for you so we talked about last uh I don't know, was it was last podcast, might have been two episodes ago, but we talked about how Jack Dorsey was wanting to make a, a more cost-efficient, ultra-low-power uh, Bitcoin mining ASIC, like a whole device that miners can use to mine. Yeah. And if this Intel thing is true and this actually comes to fruition, we could see a partnership between those two companies where Jack Dorsey is using the chips manufactured by Intel and Intel has been in the chip-making business for a, quite some time now. And um, it's going to be really cool to see what they come up with, especially since, um, you know, maybe, maybe I doubt this, but maybe it becomes something like a personal computer is and you can sort of build your own. Um, and if these chips are made available um, to engineers around the world, then we could have much more... We might have a much higher supply of affordable Bitcoin mining ASICs, which would be really, really nice. But I'm not sure what kind of specs they were talking about reaching here. It doesn't sound like they've got that far. So from what I read in the article, it says this information comes on the tail of an interview conducted with uh, Raji uh, Kaduri, I think is how you say it. Uh, He's the senior vice president and general manager of Intel's Accelerated Computing Systems and Graphics Group. Uh, This was an interview conducted in December of 2021. He says, quote, GPUs will do graphics, gaming, and all those wonderful things, but being able to do much more efficient blockchain validation at a much lower cost, much lower power, is a pretty solvable problem. We're working on that. And at some point in time, hopefully not too far into the future, we will share some interesting hardware for that. So it sounds like they're on the, they're still in the beginning stages of this, but the fact that this came from an interview from someone extremely high up in Intel, it sounds like this is definitely happening, but I'm not sure how long we're actually going to have to wait to actually see like products being rolled out um, from Intel for this, but it's still a really good thing. It looks like they might have some more news about this thing being presented at the ISSCC 2022 presentation. Um, which would be really cool because I'd like to keep up on that. That's something that's going to be... Because especially since Bitcoin doesn't seem to be indicating that they're moving away from proof of work. Right. So it's not like this kind of investment is going to be in vain, I guess. Yeah, the article brings up something interesting 
um, I think maybe that we're not taking into consideration, which is although they're very serious about developing these chips, um, what is basically the number one thing right now that's a problem in the supply shortage, it's chips. So unfortunately, because of the pandemic and supply chain shortages, this could take a lot longer uh, than maybe we would hope. Um, the The person who wrote the article says it could be as, as late as 2025 till we actually start seeing products roll out. It could. Um, right now, the, it's a lot better than it used to be. Um, I remember when RAM prices used to be astronomical, and I went out and bought 32 gigs of RAM for just over $100 the other day. So it's getting better, and actually, I think that's quite good. Um, and there's not really a huge shortage of CPUs. There's a, Some of them are a little bit harder to find. Um, but, I mean, if I went down to my micro center today and tried to go buy, like, a, a 12, well, um, like a 5,000 or a Ryzen, like, 5950X or 5900X or something like that, or even, like, a, uh, an Intel CPU of some sort, they would probably have it. I mean, they had it the last time I was down there, so. Yeah, and when I went to build my PC last year, they had the Like, 50- nothing. Well, almost I would, I would, thing, yeah. yeah, they they basically had nothing. I mean, I basically grabbed the last of each thing on the shelf, but I, I was able to get a 5900. Yeah, so, I mean, the, there's still a huge shortage when you're talking about, like, cars and stuff like that. Like, that's the biggest problem is the chips that cars use. It really depends on what the chip is because some chips nobody's using, some chips everybody's using. And Right, Tesla just had their earnings call, and they said by far the biggest problem right now, although they're they're barely able to keep up with demand although that's getting worse they said by far the biggest problem is the chip shortage going on right now so i think pretty much everyone all the big companies and their earnings calls are saying supplies is still really bad right let's see we got uh the litecoin foundation enters the world of professional esports and this isn't something that's like groundbreaking nothing like we are actively trying to pump litecoin right now just so you know yeah (laughs) it's it's it doesn't really mean a whole lot. It is really cool to see um, crypto getting some more exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like this is not like related some, to NFTs. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like this is some big eight, uh, a tier team and, and rock. This is what it, it's a, it's a rocket league team. It looks like that they, they purchased uh, what used to be. We got to get, on, we got to get on this dude. <laughs> I love rocket league. It's a really fun game. I love it. I just suck at it. Yeah, it's got a huge. Well, I mean, it's not. It's not a hard game. It's a hard game to master, and there's a lot of really technical things you can do. But it looks like they purchased a an existing team called Nefarious and put it. So, in so a wait, new coach. Are, are they? They're sponsoring? Like yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So well, I mean, they, like they purchased the esports team, so I don't know if it's like an actual sponsor, but the cars because because it's their team. Um, they're going to be like funding them and all that. So. Yeah, they they set up their own coaches and they they sort of like uh, set up how they want the the team to go and stuff like that. But it's not from what I could find online, it's not like a really big RLCS competitive team. Maybe it'll get there one day, but as of now, it's more like um, minor league, Rocket League, I guess. I don't know. I don't keep up with. Rocket I don't know league much about like the professional lot. gaming space. Yeah, but. It's yeah, cool. that, that that exists and that's cool. Um, and then Ethereum kills the Ethereum 2.0 idea in favor of a consensus layer, and the the title's a little bit misleading. They're not killing off Ethereum 2.0. It's simply a rebrand because they found that Ethereum 2.0 sort of 
um, implied some things or, or the, the title was a little bit confusing because it made it seem like that Ethereum 1 was going away. It's a little clickbaity. Yeah, Ethereum 1 is still going to exist, but it's going to exist alongside Ethereum 2, but they're kind of rebranding Ethereum 1 and Ethereum 2 as... Um, it exists inside, are you, are you saying, a separate chains? Um, or is, is, is the second version of Ethereum going to be, the, going to be a fork? So, like, right now, you just have, like, Ethereum 1.0, and it's like, they use, like, the proof-of-work uh, algorithm for consensus. Yeah. The, the, entire, the entire way they're going to achieve consensus is totally different, which is what they're referring to as Ethereum 2.0. They're retiring the name Ethereum 2.0 as uh, in favor of the consensus layer. So what's, what's now the new consensus layer? is what ethereum 2.0 is but it's the whole ethereum 2.0 thing is going away it's it's being rebranded as the consensus layer right if you go down the article it says in the brief it literally says tactics have changed since the ethereum 2.0 roadmap was first developed and basically this article is just demonstrating that developers are changing the terminology to reflect these shifts so it's it's nothing cataclysmic it's basically just saying we're we're going to slightly change uh, how we go about this, and in that change, we want to um, we we want to show that change by kind of saying, "Look, Ethereum 2.0 is not exactly the way we want to present this. We, right. we just want to call it a consensus layer." It's it really is a once you get down to it, it's it's kind of semantics, honestly. Which is why these two things are being merged. You're 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 merging the chain that was Ethereum one into the chain that is Ethereum two, and they're kind of becoming this this new thing that was going to be called Ethereum 2, but now they've opted to call what was Ethereum 1 as the execution layer and then Ethereum 2 as the consensus layer where Ethereum, the execution layer or Ethereum 1 is going to be the layer that uh, has all the smart contracts and the network rules and everything like that, where the consensus layer is just going to be... um, It's going to make sure that all the devices contributing to the network are acting in line with the rules... Um, they they achieve consensus. So if you're staking in Ethereum 2.0, it's you know the more you stake, the more the more chances you get mm-hmm. at being able to validate, and all that all happens on the consensus layer or Ethereum 2 is what it used to be called. So yeah, the article goes on to say the rebrand the rebrand reflects the fact that what's being called Ethereum 2.0 is really more of a network upgrade rather than a whole new network. To be sure, some major things are still set to change. Ethereum is shifting away from proof of work to a more scalable proof of stake chain. And mining, which is high-powered computers connected to the network, compete to validate transactions so that they might mint new Ethereum for themselves, or Ether, rather, is also on its way out. So this is, it's basically, honestly, the more you go down the article, the more the title of the article really bugs me, because it's, it's, uh, nothing's it's, getting killed, it's nothing's, just, nothing, the names nothing, are changing. Right, it's, 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 it's like, the, the title makes it sound like, something is going away like well, like the, something's canceled it's like it's like nothing got canceled it's just they're changing the terminology yeah because it was confusing for some people so they and it's really nice that they're doing that not not because that it's necessary that they have to do this but because that they too. care about they care about the people who are supporting the project and if something was a little bit confusing to them and they they can fix it they are doing that so right. that's really really nice right 
So final article we have. So this is a follow-up from last week's um, uh, Russia article uh, news piece we got into. Uh, this says Russia's finance ministry opposes central bank's call for crypto ban. So last week we talked about how the the um, the basically reserve chairman uh, for Russia's finance, basically their uh, Fed chair, Jerome Powell, their version of that. She came out and said, basically, crypto is not good. Uh, I forget what the Russian, uh, what do you call it? The Russian currency. I forget what it's called. Was it uh, a rubric? Rupal? Rupal? A rubric? A rubric. That's that thing. That's that thing you got at the beginning of class when the, the professor hands out and nobody reads it. It's, yeah. it's built into the syllabus. Yeah. So she said last week. She said this is bad for the Russian currency. We need. It's. We don't need competition. This is kind of messing things up. It would be nice to just have an all-out ban on mining if you happen to have crypto. You can hold on to that. Uh, but this week, we have an update on that. So the Russian finance ministry, which is a different sector of the Russian government, opposes the central bank call for a crypto ban, which I found interesting. Because last week I theorized that the crypto ban made sense for Russia mostly because the Russian economy is so weak. So what? it made it. Yeah, it, it made perfect sense to me. J it, more from a dictatorial, communistic, socialistic, however you want to brand it standpoint that when you have a weak economy and you have a, a decentralized currency that offers things like what Bitcoin offers, where it offers a store of value and it's it's much better on many, many, many fronts as a currency compared to the Russian currency. It made sense to me that they would come out and try and slash this down because the last thing they need is competition for their crummy government. Yes, I said crummy government. <laughs> no, but, but Putin can fight bears. Yeah. He, okay. Yes, yes, yes. The Putin memes. We, He's we, really cool. He could fight bears. <laughs> and he knows Taekwondo. He does. He's a black belt. But uh, I found it I found it interesting that the finance ministry came out and opposed this. Uh, it says the ministry believes Russia needs regulation, not a blanket ban. So my thought is uh, it's st it still confuses me even reading through the article because I don't see the advantage. It almost seems like it's just another aspect where they say, instead of banning, why don't we manipulate and control this aspect for ourselves? So instead of an all-out ban, they would rather try and, even if it's something small, make it advantageous for the Russian government to be in the space in some point, which is kind of what our government is doing because our government wants to make their own stable coin. They've said that for like, 10,000 years now. I don't have a problem with that. I don't either. I mean, more. I won't use it. No. I, <laughs> but I, I highly doubt it'll have a 9% yield. <laughs> yeah, but it, the thing is, though, if they came out with something like that, even if I don't use it regularly, if I could switch to it or, like, exchange my funds for it in order to pay for, like, taxes or other things in, in that stable coin, that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, so the Ministry of Finance uh, says, quote, we need to regulate, not ban. Regulation is sufficient to protect our citizens, uh, end quote. The Ministry of Finance has prepared to set has prepared a set of proposals and is waiting for the government to evaluate it. He said, banning crypto transactions and mining would mean undermining the industry's technological development. We need to let these technologies develop. Well, you can sort of contrast that to another article that came out um, earlier this week. Maybe it was end of last week. But um, uh, there was the former Secretary of State for Health and Social Care and the current UK Member of Parliament... Matt Hancock was urging the House of Commons to make England the home of crypto, which is totally different than what you're seeing over in Russia, which I think is really cool. But he said that the UK could be the home of new innovations like fintech and cryptocurrency. Done right, we can increase transparency and lead in new world-changing technology. So I'm I'm pleasantly surprised by this article because if you would have told me last week, oh, actually... They're, they're basically going to come back in a different part of the government is going to roll this back. I'd be like, yeah, no. <laughs> but, the fa- but the fact that the, the, the Russia's finance ministry, which, by the way, is separate from the central bank. These are two separate entities of the government. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you have the Fed Reserve and then you have like the White House. They're not the exact same. But there's, there's apples and oranges in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. But the finance ministry, the fact that they came out and they basically said, we want the we want crypto to continue to develop in our country. I think this is one of it's it's a little bit of a divergence from the topic. But I think this is one of the reasons that crypto will never die, because some people always ask, well, why can't why can't someone like a. America, they could just like snap their fingers tomorrow and say everything's banned, and then crypto basically ceases from the face of the earth. Because when it comes to technological development, especially in the 21st century, I think every country that can get any type of advantage on, of, on another country is going to take that advantage in a heartbeat. And I think cryptocurrency and blockchain development is a serious advantage, which is why even if America, which I, I don't think in a million years is going to happen, if the government came out tomorrow in America and said, we're, we're banning everything, I guarantee you dozens of other countries would step right up to the helm and be like, look, we'll give you tax breaks, we'll give you incentives, come into our country, bring your miners, bring everything. Oh, it's, sure, it's, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I was listening actually to a different podcast talking about uh, the the evolution of Bitcoin and and someone was asking, uh, it was actually impulsive. It's a Logan Paul's podcast. He had he had an early Bitcoin investor on, and he was saying, "Well, why can't why can't we why couldn't you know Thanos up in the White House just snap his fingers and and make all this go away tomorrow? Because every country has its own incentive to gain as much of an advantage as possible technologically over every other country, and I think blockchain." is quite possibly the biggest technological development we're going to have at least in the first half of the 21st century and it's just too advantageous for any of these other countries to drop it in a blanket ban along with any other country like china that would have a blanket ban we've already seen that china is the second biggest economy in the world the fact that they gave an outright ban 
And then you have countries coming up out of the woodwork, contacting Bitmain saying, hey, we'll help you. We'll give you tax breaks. We'll, we'll cut off the tariffs. Come into our country, start mining with us. Like, I think it just goes to show that crypto is here for the long term. Oh, for sure. And a lot of a lot of the mining operations were brought over here to the United States as well. Yeah, it's true. Uh, wasn't I think Bitmain opened up their own factory in was it Texas? Oh, was... there was a big or not factory. Um, Where like whatever? N- no, not factory. A uh, farm. I, I think they opened up a massive farm in uh, Austin. Um, I thought I had heard something about Georgia, but I'm not sure. No, Texas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was it was it Austin? Or does it say uh, it didn't say not okay. where I not where I saw it, but but yeah, I mean that's basically what we've had happening for like the last like year since China's ban is we've had right. a, we've we've had basically Bitmain and other companies trying to get these miners out of China ASAP so we can get them back up on the grid, which is why if you look at if you look at Bitcoin's uh network, you see once you add the ban, you see this massive drop off in the network difficulty, and then all of a sudden you just see this V shaped recovery going back up as they get sent out to other countries. Yep. And ju- and if you want to if you want to see that happening right in front of your face, just go on Alibaba and type in crypto miner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're they're everywhere. People are trying to ship them out ASAP, which I think the vast majority of them uh, have have already been relocated and they're up and running again. But so we're talking about hardware wallets and software wallets today, and we're going to co- sort of compare the differences between them, um, what advantages one might have over the other, and there are some. It's not as straightforward as you might think it would be, but. Hardware wallets have some major advantages, some real, and most of them security implications. Um, but I would like to make a small note on on public and private keys before we get started, because it's somewhat important to understand the relationship between the two in order to fully appreciate the differences between a hardware wallet and a software wallet, in whatever form that may be. And <clears throat> the public and private keys, it's they're sort of they're mathematically linked and a public and private key is something used in cryptography in order for somebody to um, sort of send a message or send a, send basically communicate securely right or as a form of identification um, securely so what usually ends up happening is your, your public and private key pair, it's a cryptographic pair of keys that allows someone to use your public key to encrypt a message to send to you, but then only you with your private key, and you know it's private so only you have it hopefully, you can use that to decrypt the message. So people use your public key to send you things like messages or cryptocurrencies, and you use your private key to decrypt those transactions or messages or whatever it may be um, so that it's secure. Um, In the case of crypto, your public key sort of acts as your wallet and can be used as an address to send funds securely, but only your private key can sign off and facilitate transactions. This is why it's really, really important for your private key to remain private. You don't, if someone gets a hold of this, they get a hold of basically your entire wallet. Like you can it's a, it, it almost sounds like uh, maybe, maybe this is a good analogy, maybe not, but when someone, say, sends you a transaction, 
you could almost see that as like a small safe sent to your PO box, and then your private key is a physical key that you open up, and, yep. and basically opening up that safe is equivalent to decrypting. That's actually a very common analogy that's used. Oh, like yeah. I, okay. Oh well. Yeah, the, the whole box and key thing—it's a pretty pretty common analogy for. Yeah, that's immediately what came to mind for me. But yeah, your your public key is just that it's meant to be public, so people can send. They can send you transactions or messages or whatever. And then your private key is for you alone, and it's usually stored on your computer. So, like, um, if you have ever used Secure Shell, which is like a way of gaining access to a terminal on another computer, as a software developer, we use this all the time. Like, if I had a Raspberry Pi or something like that set up, and I wanted to be able to remotely access the terminal on that machine, I can set up an SS there's an SSH server running on that Raspberry Pi. I have a public and private key. It authenticates my identity with my private key based on my public key and it allows me access into it that way. Now, a question, we 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 understand like what a private key is. It's something specific for you for you to decrypt transactions, messages. Then what what is a public key for? The public key is for the person on the other side to send you the message, right? So the, the the public key is that it's publicly available. So if somebody wants to send me a message, but it needs to be encrypted, you don't want anybody else to see what that is, you would use my public key to encrypt it. And because I know my public key and my public key and my private key are mathematically linked, I can use my private key to decrypt it, but they can't use, nobody else can use the public key to decrypt it. Only my private key can decrypt. So you could almost say, like, to go back to, like, the box analogy, like, the public key is almost you sending them the box that you want them to put the transaction in, and then a private key is the thing you open up the box with. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you, you have to have a public key available. If it's not there, then they can't send you a message that you can decrypt. Like, you could they could use somebody else's public key, but your private key is not going to work on that. Okay. That makes sense. With that being said... Let's talk about hardware wallets. It's you. You could think of it as the more primitive form of storing cryptocurrencies. Um, I mean, I guess it doesn't have to store cryptocurrencies. It could store NFTs or other digital blockchain assets. But there's a lot more latency in the usage of it compared to like an online wallet, which we'll get into. Yeah, it, it definitely seems more primitive. It's it's lacking in features, but that's by design. Right. Um, hardware wallets are meant to be. Uh, what you give up in speed, you, what what you give up in speed, you get back in security. Yeah, and so it's considered by pretty much everybody the most secure way to manage your cryptocurrencies. Um, it's secure because it's offline, right? When you have your wallet and it's not connected to the internet, there's no way anybody with an internet connection can get gain access to it. The only way somebody can gain access to it is if they physically have your hardware wallet in hand and know the passcode to it. Which is a hardware wallet's basically like a thumb drive, right? <clears throat> like a USB drive? That is typically what it looks like. It doesn't have to be. It, I mean, like if you go and buy like a Ledger, a Ledger hardware wallet, that's typically what they look like. I mean, they're big thumb drives. Like they're not small. They're Are they like USB? Um, I, is it USB? I, I actually, actually don't know. That's why I asked. I don't think it is. No, it's not. So how does it pl- how does it plug in? Is it like 
So it's not Wi-Fi, right? That the, wouldn't that wouldn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, so it doesn't have a Wi-Fi connection. So <clears throat> the let the ledger wallets actually use the so they store your cryptocurrencies. Well, okay, so technically they're not storing your cryptocurrencies. It stores your private keys, which right. facilitates the transactions and stuff like that. It's your wallet. But the actual crypto is on the blockchain itself. But it keeps track of like all your private keys and stuff like that for for separate wallets. Like it's a ledger wallet, but it can contain multiple wallets for different blockchains inside of it. It interfaces because it doesn't have an internet connection. You're thinking, oh, how do I get? How do I make transactions? Right, the blockchain is on the internet. Right, it's a peer-to-peer network that you can access through the internet. It's done by using a Bluetooth connection that connects to. I don't remember what they call it um it does have a usb connection on the on the device itself but it's not it's not like a thumb drive where you plug it in. it's it's like a micro usb or USB C or whatever it is on the end of it and you plug a cable into the computer so you can do it that way um i also think that one of the models if not all of them have bluetooth and the bluetooth connects to your your computer or laptop or whatever and there's software that you install on your computer or laptop that has um, up that's a program that you can use to exchange cryptocurrencies back and forth. So you can still exchange cryptocurrencies, but it's not going to be as simple as opening up like Coinbase on your app and then selecting your crypto and converting it to something else. It's not going to be like that. Okay. But the main the main difference here is that with hardware wallets, the keys are stored the private key is stored on the device itself, never exposed to the internet. That's the important thing. You may be connected to your computer via Bluetooth, but at no point during the transaction is your private key ever exposed to the internet. And this this is different than what would be like if you had a Coinbase account or an FTX or a Crypto.com or any of these other major exchanges. You don't have your private key stored locally. It's actually managed for you on their website, like in their in their uh, in the cloud, basically. So if anybody were if, if if Coinbase, for example, were ever to be compromised, or if your account was ever to be compromised, your your private key would also be compromised. Which goes back to the news article I had last week about the Crypto.com hack. The the way they would hack that would be essentially hacking in to I guess the database for lack of a better word and it basically they get access to those private keys they open up those private keys and then they rip out the funds yeah basically what happens I mean you don't even need the private key at that point if you have direct access to their account true but true but my my question is I don't understand I mean we all know how to use Bluetooth I don't understand how a Bluetooth connection connects to the the web or at least connects connects where you can connect from the wallet to the blockchain. I don't know how the Bluetooth technology is like capable of that. So the program that you install for Ledger is installed on your computer and then your hardware wallet connects directly to your computer by Bluetooth, so not by Wi-Fi. And then the computer, the two programs, the 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 Ledger and the and the software on the computer are communicating back and forth. So you you may you may want to make a transaction and your your hardware wallet 
there's also I think it's actually a I think you can also get the app on your phone, right? So if you have the app on your phone, which is also I think you can also connect to it through Bluetooth through your phones. I don't think it has to be your laptop. I think you can also use your phone, but basically your phone and your 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 phone or laptop and your ledger are connected via Bluetooth. You select the the exchange that you want to make. Say you want to exchange like a Bitcoin for, you know, some more Ethereum, whatever the exchange rate is right now. That transaction would be initiated and then signed off on your ledger hardware wallet via Bluetooth. So your key is not on the laptop, it's not on your phone, it's not on some exchange, it's still on your wallet and it's still never exposed to the internet. But it basically hands off saying, hey, will you sign this transaction? And says, okay, it's signed. And then it goes and does it. So it's like there's there's like an, um, a... There's an intermediary, which is the software? Well, yeah, sort of. It's, so, it's the conduit that connects one from the other, but simultaneously yeah. shielding the key from the web. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the software that you install on your phone or laptop communicates between the web and then to the, the ledger device by Bluetooth. Right. So... And what a lot of people may be thinking while they're hearing this is, this sounds fantastic. What happens if I lose the little thumb drive? <laughs> you are what we call screwed. <laughs> well, actually, you're not. Um, oh, really? Yeah, there is a way around it. Unfortunately, a lot of people who buy a hardware wallet... Actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't know. There, There is something like uh, called like a seed phrase... Um, they're usually 12, 18, or 24 words in length, and the seed phrase is used as like a means of backup, and you use the seed phrase for all kinds of other wallets as well, right? So if you have like a Brave wallet or a MetaMask wallet, and you like move computers, and you don't have access to that wallet anymore, you're going to need your seed phrase to recover your wallet. So it's the same way with the hardware wallet. If you lose your hardware wallet, as long as you have your seed phrase... You can buy another wallet, enter the seed phrase. And, and then it transfers? And then it pulls in your account, yep. So would that mean both wallets have the funds or the or the funds got transferred and now the one that you lost is basically just little piece of little well, piece of thumb drive? I'm not sure what happens to the missing device. It it may be marked as stolen in some sense. I don't know how they do that but yeah because if you can't if it's like duplicable and you could pull it from either one of the thumb drives then at that point at least what i would do is i would take all of my crypto out of the thumb drive that i transferred to through the seed phrase <coughs> and then i would hopefully stick it so well even if i take it off of the one i transferred it to if it's if if I can t if I can transfer all the crypto out of Ledger, does that take it out of the hardware wallet I lost? I would think so. Um, well, remember it's not actually like stored in the hardware wallet. The only thing the hardware wallet has is your the key. The key. So if you move something out of Ledger or your hardware wallet, really what you're doing is you're associating that those those transactions, all of your your unspent transactions, um, all the funds that you have with another private key. As I understand it, I could be I could be completely wrong here, but hmm, yeah, that's interesting. See, when you prep when you, when you prep for these podcasts, uh, at least like we kind of prep for them relatively on our own. 
uh, after we figure out what we want to talk about. You think when you write all these notes, you're like, okay, we, we have our bases covered. But then once we start talking, I get like a hundred different questions that come to mind that I didn't think through. And I was like, wait a minute. And then before you know it, it's like, we're just like asking questions, or at least I am left and right. This is the way. This is the way. Hey, this, this is this is one of the reasons I love to do the podcast, though. Like, you learn so much. But the, the thing that you really want to try to do if you have a hardware wallet is keep the seed, seed phrase in cold storage. And cold storage is could be anything that's locked up in, a, in your internet. safe so at like, the yeah, house. Give or... a gun safe or just like a like a regular money safe or something like that. Throw it in there. Write it down. Do you about need it. to though? Like who looks at who looks at like a hardware wall like sitting on your desk and be like, I know what that is. Well, you don't want to make those assumptions. That's I I, I yeah. know, but it's like. It's 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 not equivalent to seeing like a couple Benjamin Franklin sitting on your or desk. Or a credit card, yeah. Right, like I mean, I guarantee you, if you say say you had like a ledger wallet and you set it on your desk, and you brought like a hundred people into the room, and they were able to look at the desk, I guarantee you, like ninety nine point nine percent of them would not know that what they're looking at is a hardware wallet. Oh, that's fair, especially since they all look a little bit different. True. And we keep referencing Ledger because that's the one I'm most familiar with. I, right. I actually don't own one. I, I want to get one. But <clears throat> for reasons that we're going to talk about here in a second, him and I are both primarily using exchanges um, or software wallets. Yeah, and I'll get into why, although I, I absolutely love the security factor of hardware wallets, why I'm very torn on taking it out of online uh, of my online wallet with BlockFi. But we can get into that. If, <clears> if, if you're cool, I'll, we can get into software wallets. Yeah, now. I mean, we talked about hardware wallets already and and how it's the most secure option. Um, yeah, that opinion is held by most people. But there are some inconveniences. Like you can't, it's not easy to just go in and then exchange one fund one form of cryptocurrency it's a bit for of a another. process yeah it's not easy and and if you're like a like a day trader someone who's changing yeah. cryptocurrencies like every other minute you there's not going to be you're not going to get the charts you're not going to get you, all the data you need that a brokerage, you need yeah um so when you talk about software wallets you're talking about pretty much any other wallet that has the private key at some point publicly exposed to the internet and there's a few different versions of that, but um, there is one version that uh, that at, at least from what I've read, the the key is not exposed on the internet, and that's called a desktop wallet. Now, I I was a little confused by this because there, so there's three types. There's essentially three types of software wallets. There's desktop wallets, mobile wallets, and then online wallets. So you may think, like, what the heck's the difference between a mobile wallet and a desktop wallet? Like, it, it just sounds like you're just accessing it from a different place. So that's what I thought. But from what I've read online, there's actually a big distinction between desktop wallets and mobile wallets. So for desktop wallets, there's a distinction. And a desktop wallet essentially is a computer program that stores cryptocurrencies on a PC so that information is not accessible to anyone but the user whose private keys are kept only on the desktop. So this is, it, it basically seems like a digital form of a, not ledger wallet, but a, a hardware wallet. So it's like, it's from 
from what I understand, it's not exposed to an internet connection. It's it's stored locally on your desktop. Well, I mean, it could still be exposed if your desktop was connected to the internet. Because if someone were to, like, gain remote access to your computer via a terminal or something like that, True. then it could be. But it could potentially be similar to a hardware wallet in the I, sense. I would still argue it's more secure than an online wallet. Well, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because so for a distinction for anyone wondering, an online wallet is basically what everyone knows to be a crypto wallet. This is a wallet that's an on that is it where your key is stored with an online brokerage. So you're looking at Coinbase, you're looking at Robinhood. You're Actually, looking- not Robinhood. Robinhood sucks for this. But they where don't, do they store their key? There the isn't one. They don't actually have a wallet. They kind of just like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that, it's, it's this it's, thing where they kind of just like make you think that you have Bitcoin, but you actually don't. Yeah. You just have the value of Bitcoin. Right. Ba- basically, what they do is... I think Webull does the same thing. Yeah, they, they do. And I hate this. I hate this. It's Because uh, at least for me, when I own something, I want to own something. So if, if I recall, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone listening, but Robinhood and Webull excuse me basically what they do is so say you're on Robinhood, you're like "Ooh, bitcoin's going to the moon i want to buy me some bitcoin so when you go on there and you buy bitcoin you're actually not buying physically buying bitcoin off of or through the blockchain what you're doing is you're you're you are buying the price and then they're basically giving you this fugazi asset that fluctuates in direct correlation with bitcoin yep which to Very me, deceiving. it's extremely deceiving, and not only that, you're not even you're not even getting transacted uh, through the blockchain. Like there was actually uh, someone I follow; his name is Meet Kevin. He actually was able to interview the CEO of Robinhood, and he asked them. Uh, he said, uh, "Do you guys use the blockchain for your uh, crypto transactions?" He said. Sometimes we do if if it's necessary for a really big purchase, but the vast majority of the time we don't see the need to use the blockchain. I'm like, so you basically just told me to my face that I'm not buying Bitcoin. Because if I'm buying Bitcoin or any crypto, I'm going to need a chain to process that transaction. Or like the what's even worse is like for me, I was in a position where I I was invested in I don't remember what it was. It might have been some Bitcoin at the time, but it was on Robinhood. And at the time, I didn't really know much about it. And it was during that whole like GameStop fiasco where they shut down trading. About a year ago to this day, actually. Yeah. And and I wanted to get out of Robinhood and I wanted to take my cryptocurrencies with me. And I thought, oh, I can just transfer it, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies. Robinhood's terrible at this. You can't because there's no wallet. Mm -hmm. You don't have an address to send it from. It's... No 30-minute transaction for you. The only way you could get your cryptocurrency out of Robinhood is to liquidate it and then to withdraw the funds. And then after, I don't know, a week, you get your funds back. And then you have to take those funds, put it into another um, brokerage that supports wallets or yep. um, go and buy it directly through like MetaMask or something, some other crypto uh, exchange platform. And hope that the prices haven't changed too drastically, and that you get to, or hopefully they they low they went lower, so that you know it's an indirectly a good transaction. You know, you buy low there, but not only that, but I so I don't know this for a fact, but this is what I'm assuming. So what happens with Robinhood is 
So like for, for your situation, you want to transfer it to a different brokerage. The problem is you have to take that asset and you have to liquidate it. So for tax purposes, you've just realized a capital gain or loss, right? Because you had to liquidate it and you had to transfer it. With crypto, when it's stored on the blockchain, when you go to transfer it, you're not liquidating it. You still have the asset. You're moving the asset. So it's not being liquidated. So you have... Uh, it may I'll, appear it, like that if on your exchange they give you some forms that, that say, hey, you you liquidated this, or it may, may look like... Right, well, if you're sending it from yeah. one wallet to another, you're not liquidating it, you're transferring Right, it. yeah, but their forms may say otherwise. But the reason that's huge, especially for me, this is why I'll never in a million years use Weevil or Robinhood or anywhere where they don't actually let you have the coin on, on the chain. The reason is, is because... So say say you bought Bitcoin 2017 for like 10,000. Say you're up, you're up 300%, and maybe you bought it through Robinhood. If you wanted to transfer it to to somewhere else, you have to now, and this is actually something I ran into with someone I follow who bought Bitcoin at $5,000, and it was at $40,000 when I was listening to this, had them have this conversation. They said, I, am basic, I have basically imprisoned myself to Robinhood because if I want to transfer it, then I have to, I'm going to have to pay taxes on those gains just to transfer it because I have to realize the gain now instead of just transferring it. Whereas, say you bought Bitcoin at $5,000 on like a BlockFi or a FTX or, or any one of the big ones, you know, even Coinbase, you just transfer the actual asset. You still have the gains intact and you haven't liquidated them into any type of stablecoin. Right. So that's a huge especially with the amount of gains that we have that is a huge difference and for me that is why never in a million years and why i would recommend to you guys if 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 you want to if you want to be in crypto for a long term you're like a long-term investor you you see five ten twenty year horizons for this i would really encourage you actually buy the coin do not get it on Robinhood. do not get it on weeble and if you happen to be on Robinhood and weeble right now and you're not really up or down much on it but you're like me, you want to be in this for the long term, I would really recommend before crypto goes on a bull run again, liquidate it, send it out, get it into something that you want to be in long term where you're not going to have to realize the taxes on that. Because let me tell you, when when you have like, when you have like, say, uh, it, for, for, the per, for the person I was listening to, he had 10 Bitcoin. Oh my goodness. He had 10 Bitcoin and he was literally imprisoned to Robinhood, it's yeah. like dang. I mean, ten Bitcoin. So say he he went from five thousand to forty thousand. That's thirty five thousand efforts. That's three hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars in taxes he would have had to pay just to get it to, like, just to basically get the actual coin. He's he's done. He, there's no way he's ever going to pay that. So that's insane. Cause I mean, three hundred fifty grand. You're probably gonna pay thirty five to forty percent on that. So you're probably looking at about one hundred fifty grand in taxes on three fifty. Especially since if he wants to continue to invest it, those aren't actually realized gains. Yeah, which he did. He'd have to have three hundred fifty thousand dollars on hand to pay yep. for taxes that he shouldn't be paying because it's still invested. Yeah. And there, I don't know if there's a way to appeal that in some way. Maybe there is. He's a pretty smart dude. I would I would imagine that he have found that out by now if you could but yeah my guess is tax laws are gonna get start getting kind of hairy 
the more people get into regulation crypto. is is, yeah. is going it's starting to become much more of a prominent discussion and from the fed standpoint but but that's one example of a software wallet is the online wallets and these are the wallets that that are associated with exchanges i mean if the exchange has a wallet like we just mentioned Robinhood and Webull they don't have actual wallets associated with their accounts um a place like a, a crypto exclusive exchange like FTX, Binance, Coinbase, Kraken, they're all going to have wallet support. Yep. And those public those those private keys are stored on their servers, which means if someone compromises those servers, your public key or sorry, your private key is also compromised. Yeah. And that's one of the major downsides of online wallets. One of the major upsides, though, is that it's very easy to have data about your transactions. You have a cost basis. You have easy accessibility to exchange funds in seconds. Um, you may have money floated to you in order to make transactions faster. Um, things like that, which you won't get with hardware wallets. Yeah. So it's kind of the moral of the story between the two differences between hardware wallets and software wallets is on one end, what you gain in security, you lose in in quickness of assess- accessibility, transferring, getting in and out if, if that's kind of the game you want to play. And then for the software wallet, the more mobile your, your key is stored online, what you lose in security, you're going to gain in the fact that you can get in and out at an instant. Most likely, you're going to be able to see... Hopefully, if you're on a good brokerage, not Coinbase, you'll be able Coinbase to see. Sucks for this. Yeah, you'll be able to see uh, the amount of money you invested compared to your cost basis. You'll be able to see charts right next to your actual portfolio. It's much nicer to get an overall perspective of what's happening with your money when you're on a mobile wallet. But uh, something me and Brett were talking about actually before we started rolling was. So we talk about the security differences between a hardware wallet and a software wallet. So keys stored offline, keys stored online. All of this to be said, uh, I think there's a really strong argument to be made even for mobile crypto wallets. You could still make a great argument. They're still even more secure than your bank account right now. Right. Because of of the extent they make you go to. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, they understand this, right? They understand that security is important to someone invested in and bitcoin or crypto in general and a lot of times they'll force you to have 2fa set up in order to even uh begin exchanging on their platform which a lot of banks don't enforce for some reason but one thing that we didn't talk about which was actually one of the major reasons that him and i still use an exchange um we have multiple wallets of course because we do diversify every now and then where our funds are distributed but I'm with Coinbase right now, and that's almost 100% because of the fact that they have some pretty decent savings accounts. It's not really a saving account, but basically if you put so much um, money in a specific coin, you'll gain so much interest yearly, and it's paid out monthly. Well, with the Coinbase card. Yeah, and I also have the Coinbase card, which is really nice because... This is the best part of Coinbase, in my opinion. Yeah, that's the only reason I'm still using it. Um, It's... I'm sure other places have something similar. More of this stuff is starting to come out, but my Litecoin miners pay out to my Coinbase, uh, my Litecoin wallet there. 
And then I have my Coinbase card set up to be able to spend money from my Litecoin wallet. And then I get 4% back in XLM. So it's easy cash back. And oh, is that what you did? I did that too. Yeah. Or, yeah. So you get 4% cash back in XLM, which is another crypto asset that I really like. Well, that was the coin of the week we talked about uh, last That's, week, Stellar. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really nice. Um, but then there's other platforms like BlockFi, which will give you, I think, even higher, like upwards of 9% um, or more maybe. And is it Stablecoin? The yeah, it's it's the GUSD, the Gemini stablecoin. Yeah, so if you put money into the Gemini stablecoin on BlockFi, they'll give you nine. Was it nine? I, I think I think so. I think on Gemini's website they give you nine percent. If you go on BlockFi, which is uh, BlockFi is a partnership with Gemini, I think it's eight and a quarter percent. I don't know why there's a discrepancy, but either way, it's it's a very high yield. Now, big question maybe. Uh, my savings account is like 0.01%. How in the heck, if I transfer that to stablecoin, which fluctuates with the dollar, so it's basically a digital dollar, how are, in the heck are they able to give me 8 to 9%? That seems ridiculous. So how they do this is basically they pay you for the very thing that your central bank does, which is what they'll do is they will take your money. Loan it out. And they will loan it out uh, to... They will basically loan it out as li uh, liquidity to day traders and people like that. There's actually uh, maybe I'll link it uh, down below in the video, but there's a there's actually an article uh, that BlockFi posted on their website for exactly what they do uh, with your money. Now, although they do lend it out and basically they they'll lend it out uh, with interest, so to like a day trader or anyone that basically wants a <coughs> loan through BlockFi. Uh, which you can actually take loans yourself through BlockFi using uh, your crypto's collateral. They have a BlockFi credit card you, you can order if you want. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in that, but for anyone interested, uh, that is a thing. What they'll do is they'll send your money out. They'll charge the person they're loaning your money out interest. They'll collect on the interest. They'll just basically keep cycling your money through as long as it's in there, continuing to reloan it, reloan it, reloan it. And then they'll basically give you a percentage of the kickback. And it's so profitable for them that they're able to give you this amount of yield. So basically, they give you the kickback. So if, if say, you have, um, you know, say you have $1,000 in stablecoin just sitting in BlockFi, that, you know, that's going to yield $90 over the course of a year. I guarantee you they're making more than double off of that because of the fact that they're continuing to take your money and recycle it. So a lot of day traders will actually go to these companies to uh, basically get loans out for day trades uh, because, you know, you have some old fart like a Vanguard or Fidelity, something you use your Roth IRA for. They're not giving out these loans because they're not in the crypto business. They're in the, the, the index funds business. They're in the, the long-term investment business. They're not in crypto day trading. If you really want liquidity for crypto day trading, you're going to go to a place like a BlockFi, a Gemini, etc. So they're really in the business of continuing to give out these loans. But uh, at the same time, if you're not comfortable with that, you can go the, the hardware wallet route or something where security is absolutely paramount for you. I, I completely understand that. For me, the reason why it's extremely difficult for me to give in and do the hardware wallet route is because they don't only do this for stablecoin. They will do this for a bevy of cryptocurrencies. So for Ethereum, 
they have a 5% yield. I believe it's 5%. So sometimes depending on the market cycle, like bear market, bull market, it'll the yield will fluctuate a little bit. It is subject to change, but it is pretty darn stable. I've noticed since I've had BlockFi. Um, for, and I, I'm actually just going to go down the list so for anyone interested, but uh, let's see here. So it is 5% for Ethereum. For, Which see. is still a heck of a lot better than oh, a, yeah. a regular that's, I mean, savings that's, account. That's 500x your savings account at your 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 bank. The problem is, though, Ethereum is incredibly volatile, especially right now. So this is only I would only stable is obviously the better route if you want like a safe, reliable investment. The only thing to keep in mind though is that this stuff is not FDIC insured. Yes. So. All right, so it's 5%. Uh, this is specifically on BlockFi. So this isn't like everywhere. I'm, I'm specifically talking about BlockFi, which is in the business of giving you an annual yield for... And I would only recommend this if you're a long-term crypto holder. If you want to make this like long-term plan, I would recommend BlockFi. I, I've used it for basically since I started, and it's I think it's fantastic. Uh, so for Bitcoin, it gives you a 4.5% uh, annual yield. Uh, and if anyone's interested in holding Litecoin in there, it gives three and a half percent or Uniswap, which it gives three and a quarter percent. Uh, and Gemini, let's see, Gemini, nine percent. Yeah. So on BlockFi, it is nine percent as well. These numbers do fluctuate some. Yeah. They, they don't fluctuate majorly. Like you're not going to go from five percent to one percent, but I have seen Ethereum fluctuate between four and a half percent, four percent, five percent. I see it fluctuate a little bit there. And when it does fluctuate, they do send you an email letting you know that there are rate changes. So it's not like you're like, it's like out of left field. They, they let you know it's coming. But so that you you kind of have to decide for yourself with this information. Do you, do you consider security absolutely paramount? You want as much security as possible. If you do, I would definitely recommend the hardware wallet route, especially if you're not going to be like in and out of this stuff. Like if you just want to basically invest you know, put it, put it in a drawer and forget about it for 20 years. Like I, I would definitely recommend, uh, going the hardware wallet route. If you're like me and you're interested in maximizing gains and you do, and you research the company and you do trust the people up top, uh, I would recommend if you're interested in getting as much bang for your buck in the interest as possible, I would recommend block five for sure. Uh, so it just depends on what you want out of it as usual. Yep. Um, the other thing that I'll mention is that there's a wallet that we've not talked about yet, and it's called MetaMask. And this is a special type of wallet because it's basically it basically only works for Ethereum-based assets. So if you have Bitcoin or Litecoin or something that's non-Ethereum-based, this wallet's not really going to do much for you. But if you're into like Web3, which is like this new standard for web that that, enter, that that talks to the blockchain or if you want to get connected to a digital app or something like that metamask is really good because it's it's a software wallet you can connect hardware wallets to it um but metamask is really nice because you can you can send funds back and forth you can swap it for some other funds and it's a browser extension, so you can use it to connect to websites that are that use the blockchain. So, like for example, I use Ethermine on my computer to mine Ethereum on my GPUs. I can 
The funds will go straight to my wallet, but I can connect my wallet to the Ethermine website and have it automatically like update how many funds. It can show me how many funds I have. It connects my wallet address, so it shows me statistics on on the the performance of my mining associated with that wallet and stuff like that. So there's a lot of wallets that you can install that won't do this. Um, they won't they won't um, connect to blockchain digital apps on the web. But MetaMask kind of does both of these, and it's a browser extension, and that's why it works. MetaMask also has a mobile version, um, which can do the same thing. You, you use MetaMask a lot of times to buy NFTs and stuff like that because they're websites that use the blockchain that sell you NFTs. You need MetaMask in order to facilitate those transactions. Um, that's the only other thing I'll say. I mean, it, it follows most of the same rules that we just talked about involving software wallets. Um, you can recover it with a, with a recovery phrase. Um, the keys stored on your machine. Um, it's not managed by a central exchange because it's a desktop wallet, but it is required by a lot of places if you want to take advantage of some digital apps uh, based on the Ethereum network. So that's yeah. that. That's pretty much that's pretty much all the wallets there are. I mean, there's. I'm sure there's a hundred variations, but ninety nine percent of those variations fall under the four categories, which is the three categories that fall under software wallets or, you know, the hardware wallet yeah. route. Hardware, software, and then under software, you have mobile, online, and desktop. Yep. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, we got... Coin of the week. Got our coin of the week. It was your turn. This one's pretty cool. Um, when I was looking at getting into mining, because, you know, it's always nice to be the first the first on to a specific mining project, right? Because if you're in early and it turns out that it's going to be big and it blows up, it's really cool to get in early because, you know, the mining's easier, you get more rewards. If it goes up, you make more money. Um, this was one of those projects, but it unfortunately got into the game a little bit late. It was hard to find miners for it. It's a little bit easier now. However, it's not as profitable as it used to be, but it's still really... Um, affordable way to start mining for a lot of people and it does actually yield some pretty good um returns this is the helium network which uses um, hnt as its native currency it's the helium token and the helium project is really really cool because it's less focused on the actual currency and 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 it's more of a solution to a not really a problem that exists, but something that could be better. And their main their main goal is to um, create a network of IoT devices, and IoT is is short for Internet of Things. And the Internet of Things is basically just this um, term thrown around, maybe overused some, but I have a I have a definition for it if you if it, you want it. And well, in just a second. In general terms, it refers to smart devices. So like your Google Home speaker, your smart refrigerator, your smart microwave, your smart anything pretty much that interacts with other devices in your home. So like smart home applications is usually what that refers to. Um, if you have a definition, you can go ahead with that. Yeah, so the definition I have came from, uh, it actually came from Coinbase. Uh, the definition of Internet of Things according to Coinbase is the interconnection via the Internet of of computing devices embedded in everyday objects, enabling them to send and receive data. Yeah, so that's a little bit more of a confusing way of listening to it. it it's, quite, it's, it's quite wordy. Yeah, it, all of your smart home applications need to be able to talk to each other 
in order to function properly. Like um, if you want to set routines or something like that, like your Google Home speaker, and you want to have it talk to your microwave or your coffee pot, say, hey, make me some coffee at 4 a.m. And those, those two things need to be able to, to communicate with each other. And currently that's over the Internet. It, it's 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 basically a device or devices that is can that can be connected with other devices and those devices can send and receive data. And the Helium network seems like it's it's actually scaling really really well. Um, the idea behind the Helium network is that in order for okay, so we talked we talked about already that it wants to create a network for IoT devices to communicate with each other. And what this means is basically it's going to create. Um, an internet network that anybody can use. So what, how it works is the miners on the Helium network will use these um, hotspots. They're basically like big radio antennas. Um, they use long-range WAN, which is WAN is short for wide area network. If you think of, if you're familiar with uh, networking, LAN is your local area network, so all devices directly connected to your router. Um, in your own home <clears throat> and then WAN is the connection you get from the outside world from your internet service provider into your home that gives you connection to everybody else in the world that's that's the wide area network with Helium you basically take these long range WAN hotspots and you hook them up to your existing network you, they'll, they'll basically piggyback off of your home's existing Wi-Fi and it'll reroute these packets it'll it'll broadcast another network out preferably out like outside your home so you'll usually put these in a window or um they look like tiny little like netgear wi-fi yeah they're, they're like little access points but they're considered long-range hotspots. and you you mine the idea is you mine with these things by by using a proof of coverage algorithm mm -hmm. and basically the people who have the most coverage or who have more the more coverage you have the more likely you are to validate and, and you make more money coverage that way. is equivalent is equivalent to hash rate basically yeah the more coverage you have the higher your hash rate yeah. essentially and it's really cool because if everybody does this you start creating this big network that talks back and forth right so like my hotspot will talk with mark's hotspot whose hotspot will talk to bob's hotspot and then you just have this giant network that can be used by anybody. All these BitTorrent users know what we're talking about already. <laughs> yeah. Um, this has really big implications, and some of them are which are already being realized. If you go to Helium's website, they they have news on there where they've actually partnered with Dish to release the first, Ooh. or to, not to release the first, but to um, they partnered with them to to create the first Helium five G network. So. I'm assuming this is pretty limited at the moment because there's only like what 500 and some thousand hotspots worldwide, which really isn't that many, not yet. I mean, it'll definitely get bigger, but the more of these we add, it's, it, it seems like it could almost become like a Starlink thing on the ground. That's how I took it. So I took it as a, oh, so we're going to finally, well, this isn't going to be the only thing because never doubt Elon Musk, but... This is going to be one of the big catalysts that could really literally get all, what is it, like close to 8 billion people at this point on the grid because we can use these things and the range of the hotspot they have. 
is so vast, we can finally get people and really rural places on the grid. Well, it, it may not be as simple as that because it does need an existing Wi-Fi connection. Well, a, a but, catalyst. Yeah. It's, it, it's it definitely can, going to, uh, But uh, current hotspots is 529,565, according to their website. Yeah. So, so a little, little over half a million. And uh, for anyone interested, uh, helium is up a very casual 1,150% over the last year. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really cool. And and just to pull a quote from their frequently asked questions, um, here's how each of their actual hotspots work. It says, The helium hotspot creates a long phi radio signal and routes packets from low-power devices in your area that use uh, long-range WAN and have been deployed to the helium network. Typically, these devices such as GPS trackers, environmental sensors, weather meters, etc., that only need to transmit and share small bits of information. The hotspot uses your existing internet to deliver the data packets set by devices. It does not replace internet or cellular service for regular devices like computers and smartphones. So I guess I guess it wouldn't be a total a total replacement, but um, with their partnership with Dish and they uh, created Helium 5G, it looks like that it could be supporting something bigger. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's weird. I see on this website, I haven't seen this before, but it's, it says on the homepage, uh, it gives a, so there's a, there's a couple different pages that let you go to. There's a page for mine. There's a page for use. There's a page for stake. So you can mine helium and stake helium as a validator. It looks like, yeah. Yeah, it, it says uh, it says right here, well, that's, that's a lot of money. So it says to run a, run a validator. This isn't staking. This is running a validator, basically like a node. You need 10,000 helium, which is equivalent to about 270,000 bucks. Because helium right now is about 27 bucks and change. Well, that's more than that for Ethereum. Yeah, no, Ethereum would be less because what is it? A 32 Ethereum times like 2,500. It's like less than 100 grand, right? Yeah, it's, it's way less than 100 grand. Oh, I guess it is. Well, right now, yeah. Well, even at peak, if we go 4,800 times 32, even at Ethereum's peak, you'd only need 153. yeah. You'd only need 153 grand at Ethereum's peak to run a validator. Helium, you need. 270 grand and this is on a massive dip so yeah hmm. hey we, we can still do it dude we'll, we'll go into massive debt we'll, we'll get a we'll get a we'll become a validator we'll do it dude we'll make bank yeah i don't know um i'm, I'm probably gonna have to think on that one um but i, I am a little bit confused though because they're that that note that i just read said that it wasn't for replacing internet or cellular service for regular devices like computers and smartphones but at the same time they're releasing helium 5g and i'm pretty sure iot devices don't need 5g connections but i don't know maybe maybe that was just like the normal iot network and this 5g thing is just building on top of it i'm not sure i probably should have. Uh, i'm assuming they have a white paper i probably should have gone into their white paper to make sense of that well, the white paper is going to be like how it was originally thought of and how it was originally founded. Well, it's going like to it's going to give use cases though, which which may give some clarity to the to the yeah. discrepancy. But you, they actually have um all they have a lot more miners available now. You can actually build your own too. Um, I'm probably not skilled enough to do that. I've not looked into it. Maybe I am. I don't know. But he is. Don't doubt him. He is. <laughs> hundreds. Let's see. You can you. They have a massive decentralized connectivity. Um, there's thousands of existing solutions that you can use to mine with. You can use the network. There's a button here. Use the network. Start using the network. How do you use the network? Wait, do you know, it says right here in their uh, use cases page, it says 
the growth of the Helium network has been explosive by creating a roaming integration with the Helium network. We are now able to offer a low raw WAN network. Yes, yeah, that long range WAN. Okay, long range WAN. Okay, okay, okay. that makes sense because I was like, wait, what? What the heck is that? Uh, public or private access to coverage, enabling them to deploy applications in the market faster with low cost and less hassle. Yeah, so it's basically, it, it seems like the elevator pitch is this is a. This 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 is internet connection with a wider range, with a which with which is much more efficient. Well, here they even um, at the bottom of their use page they have a helium versus <clears throat> telephone companies, and they show comparisons between ACT, Verizon, T-Mobile. So it looks like they are trying to get into sort of like the. Cellular oh, wow. data so, space, so, maybe? so over the last 30 days, they've added 74,000 hotspots. That's oh, a lot. Wow. That's, yeah. That's, that's a lot. So 74,000. Here, we, we can do some quick math on this. So if we go 529 divided by 74, uh, 7.14 divided by 7.1. So they have, they have grown 14% in 30 days. That annualized they are going to easily double like they are going very fast so the market price right now is 2665 uh it says they have 32 million helium stakes that's a lot of helium stakes. that is a lot of helium uh, i'm kind of says, kicking myself for not getting in but i wanted to now it says dude it's still in a massive dip i know look at the chart but it says uh oh wow that's not a lot so there's only 3232 staked validators at the moment that's hmm. not very many no total beacons ninety two point six million. Um, yeah, it's it's had a little over one point two million uh, blocks uh, added to the chain since its inception. But it's cool. It's it, they, uh, I'll I'll put it up in the uh, 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 I'll put it up on screen for you guys. There's uh, they have this map here. Uh, it's it's called Helium Explorer. They let you see where the hotspots are. Here I'll show. Oh really? I didn't yeah. See that one. Here, here I'll show Brett. It's so here. If you look here. Oh dang, that's a lot more than it's, I thought it's, it would it's be. It's 165 countries, uh, which is incredible. Here, how do I? Yeah, won't well, let me scroll. But uh, it's it's quite expansive. I mean, it's mostly it looks like Europe and the eastern half of the United States. Yeah, so 163 countries, uh, it's over 40,000, almost 41,000 cities, uh, j- and it's added almost 6,000 cities in the last 30 days. Wow, I th- this is this is interesting. There's too many cryptos, man. They're all doing so many good things. I can't invest. Can I invest in all of them? Maybe I don't know. So it's, it's a lot, but it, this is definitely really interesting. Yeah, especially if you're trying to. It's, Especially if you're trying to create a device, like say you're trying to release a new IoT device and get it to production, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about people having a Wi-Fi connection to use it if you have this Helium network available. Right. Which I think, which I think is part of their goal, because they even give you like a like a cost analysis. So if you have, um, I don't know, five devices. That transmits a packet every, I don't know, let's say half hour. The total cost for the device per day, uh, oh, it has to be so. Dude, you can literally go in via Google Maps and see how many are in your exact area. 
Oh, really? This is where we're at. So, I mean, I don't know. This is probably like a couple miles. But there's two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, there's like a dozen uh, helium hotspots just exactly where we are here. And there's definitely some coverage gaps. Ooh, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's it's not even been out very long, and that's insane. And the coverage, at least in a 30-day trend, is going up 14% per month. That's a lot. That is a lot. No, it's it's very interesting. So for me, so uh, like I said last week, I was getting into uh, XLM Stellar, which is basically the, the coin that can act as a, something to transfer instantaneously across borders. For me, I still see a, at least currently, obviously things can change, coins can change, they, they can get better or worse uh, with each update or iteration. I still see a little bit more of a use case for Stellar, but there's going. this could definitely get to a point where the coverage gets so expansive. And I, I could easily see Helium getting to a point where it easily becomes almost household. Well, it wouldn't become household name because it's getting integrated in, into these networks and people aren't even going to know like why they're getting 5G in crazy places. Uh, they just are, which is which is something uh, someone else talked about on a podcast I listened to this week. They they said, when are people going to know like blockchain has arrived? And, uh, and uh, the investor said, they're not going to know. It's They're just going to be using it and they won't know it. They're just going to be making transactions through the blockchain. They, they're not, they don't even know what that means. So I think that <laughs> I think that could be a similar use case for Helium. People use these great coins like this. They don't even know they're using them. It's true. Yeah. But, a lot of uh, the developers would maybe know they're using it, but the people who buy the product that the developer created. Right. If you're somewhere in like rural Africa, somewhere maybe that, that isn't very well substantiated on the grid and then all of a sudden you're able to get something like a 5g connection uh mostly due to helium and helium miners in the area people aren't going to know why they're just like oh we have 5g now yay you know but uh i was looking i still at, see a lot of potential for this coin going forward and, and if you're interested in mining um obviously this is a big estimate i mean it's a lot of speculation here but there's a website i went to where i just put in how many hotspots are in my area and based on that map I put several which is like the most it makes an estimation as to how many you're going to make with um oh, okay with a miner so one hotspot for me would in this area assuming kind of several hotspots around me $21.43 a month that's not fantastic is that per miner or per miner okay Per miner, yeah. Yeah, so, but what miner? I'm sure each miner similar to it does. similar to ASICs. That's that's why I said it's highly speculative, and you'd have. I to... think they're they're very high margins, though. That's the key to them. I think I think they're so efficient. These these helium miners are because I've I've uh, before we got into oh, the mic. before we got into coin of the week, um, before we got into coin of the week, I, I actually had watched uh, some videos a couple months ago about people talking about helium miners. I didn't know really anything. about about its use case i just knew people were using it to mine and everyone was saying the margins were fantastic uh because the uh, power efficiency of it was so low uh so may maybe out of that 21 dollars 
uh, I don't know if that was profit or not, but if that was gross, maybe you know twenty dollars of that is profit. It's going to be near gross. I mean, you're going to be paying almost nothing to run these things. I know. I mean, maybe a dollar a month, maybe in power, but I mean, yeah. The 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 only problem is compared to say like a Bitcoin miner, Ethereum, or even Litecoin you want to throw in there is when you have coins like this that aren't quite as substantiated in the crypto space as some of the bigger players are such as like bitcoin ethereum uh it's more you're more susceptible to the coin or the project uh folding which i'm not saying this is going to happen for helium i'm just saying for smaller mineable coins in general you're you're always uh subjected to the possibility because Helium miners, they're basically ASICs. They don't do anything but work for the Helium network, unlike a GPU. Right. So you do have a little bit more risk there. You almost want to look at it like an ASIC because if somehow the project folded, you're out. You're toast. These things are probably garbage. Uh, maybe they have a different use case. Maybe you can use them as a you know, a, a node of some sort. But you, you just want to be careful when you have some of these smaller coins because there is a possibility that it, it could poo-poo and in that case your miners probably garbage <clears throat> something else i i read um to kind of put it into perspective a little bit more you can the one of the first miners i found was the bobcat miner 300 which is a 450 us dollar yeah a helium miner and a reddit post that came across said that he made 15 helium in the last 30 days at the current price wow that's that's break even in a month yeah. Yeah. What are That's we not doing? Bad at all. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm half tempted to to try it. Just. I mean, you I can mean, it's you can write it off. But yeah. Yeah, if you want to just give it a go. Yeah. So I mean, that's definitely something to look at. I mean, if you're making 15 in a day and it's about what what was it? Like? It's a 2665 right now. Yep, right under 400 dollars. And a dip. Wow. ROI in almost a month. Well, a little over a month. And that's a insane. If if that's to be believed. I mean, obviously things have changed a little bit. I, I've heard helium advocates talk about the profitability, though. So that's right. that's not super surprising to me. But yeah, um, really cool coin. Um, it looks like it's still really profitable to get into mine. Brings a lot to the table. Um I'm not sure if I will invest in it or not. I might. I might take a look at it's it. More de- I'll definitely. But I'm be, definitely interested in it. I, I'll definitely be paying attention to it. It'll be on my watch list moving forward for sure. Yep. All right. I think that's all we've got for today. Yes, sir. We got. Uh, I think next week we're going to be talking about different exchanges. Maybe which will be right. We kind of touched a little bit on that already, but got to compare different exchanges, right. rates, what, and stuff like that. Right, the pros fees. and cons of each one and hopefully kind of crowning a winner at the end of it. Yep. All right. Peace.